Two new people, so I just want to introduce myself. My name is Charles Small, and I'm the founding director of the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, or ISGAP. We're an independent research center. Our head office is in New York um, and in Rome. We have a research center at Sapienza University, an independent center in New York, and we do academic seminar programming at McGill University, uh, Harvard, Fordham, Columbia Law School, now we're doing uh, at the University of Miami and at Stanford. And we are trying to bring together leading scholars from around the world to give interdisciplinary, high caliber interdisciplinary analysis of, of anti-Semitism with a bent on the contemporary. Um, for many reasons, we're going to hear some of it tonight. As Matthias and I were speaking earlier, the issues of anti-Semitism in the, I think the expert's opinion is becoming something that is, um, it's, it's back if it's ever left, I'm not sure if it ever left, but it's certainly uh, rising again in different parts of the world. Um, I was living in, I'll just very quickly because there's a few new faces here, I was living in Jerusalem uh, leading up to the Second Intifada. Uh, I was a scholar at Ben-Gurion University in Tel Aviv. And to make a long story short, I was working with Israeli and Palestinian scholars trying to have reconciliation work. And, and my background is in the human rights, uh, human rights background, active on the indigenous and the First Nations issues in Canada where I was born, and also on anti-apartheid and anti-racism. So I come out of this um, background. Visited the Soviet Union, uh, visiting refuseniks when I was a young teenager, and bringing Ethiopians from Sudan to Canada to Israel. So I come from a human rights background, and I met a young, uh, intellectual in Ramallah who turned out to be from Islamic Jihad. And we spoke, very cultured, hospitable young man, about my age, and he started to say things that to my ears was insane, preposterous, uh, about Jews, about women, about gay people, about religious minorities, about notions of democracy and self-determination. And after two or three occasions, I stopped arguing with him, and I began to listen. And I asked him for books to read. And I, uh, you know, Matthias was saying after 2001, he read, he locked himself away and he read. I started reading in uh, 98, 1998, after meeting this young man. And was blown away that I went, I was fortunate to go to good schools. I went to McGill, University of London, Oxford, University of Montreal taught at the University of London, and I had no clue, no understanding, no clue that this worldview even existed, never mind having the capacity to understand and critique it. I didn't know it existed. And this, I would argue, is the failure of our Western education, even in the greatest universities in the United States and beyond, and it's the failure, because of our education, of the policymakers to understand how to take a constructive, approach that doesn't just engage, but to engage with a forceful democratic um, approach, rooted in democracy, rooted in the rights of citizenship, that we all have the right, regardless of our religion, regardless of our uh, ethnic status or racial status or gendered identities, we all have the right to be equal under one law. And that doesn't begin and end at the borders of this country. These are there's universal international human rights that must be, uh, I would say, championed. 
So we're living in a time, on the one hand, radical political Islam, not Islam, not Muslims, but reactionary, radical political Islamism is gaining more and more power in, in many more societies as states begin to crumble and disintegrate before our eyes. And we, in this postmodern moment in the West, don't have the capacity to, to critique, to, to be critical of social movements that denigrate gay people, that subjugate women, that incite, and I'm choosing my words very carefully, incite to genocidal anti-Semitism. That people with, with, with many Western countries, including the United States, are engaged, engaged in negotiations and policies with regimes that think that Jews are the descendants of apes and pigs, that they're dogs, that they bring all of the corruption of humanity to the table. Could you imagine today, as part of the anti-apartheid movement, the chairperson of the African National Solidarity Committee of Canada and the United Kingdom, could you imagine if a leader from Africa, a white leader from Africa, would come to this country and say that Africans are the descendants of apes and pigs? I believe in 2014 that leader would be told to pack and to leave. And yet, it's common currency, common currency, that we engage and negotiate and sign treaties with people that see the Jew in the most pernicious form of anti-Semitic imagery. And anti-Semitism begins with Jews, but it never, ever, ever stops with Jews. Once this disease of hatred is unleashed, it affects others, other marginal groups, Baha'is, women, other religious minorities, the cops, and others. So anti-Semitism isn't the parochial issue. It's not an issue where advocates get together, not scholars, but advocates get together and, and, and take a position. This is a scholarly institute, and this is an, a subject that if anybody cares about human rights, if anybody cares about the future of international relations, we have to address it. And I dare say, I just wrote a, a piece, that the silence on anti-Semitism in Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini, 18 hours before the six countries signed an interim agreement with Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, not a radical maniac, uh, unstable person, but a leader of a revolutionary regime, said that not Israelis and not Zionists, but Jews were rabid dogs. The Jews were the corrupt, bringing corruption to the world. And not a word. 18 hours later, the six countries signed an interim agreement with a man that was inciting to genocide, representing the values of a regime. And we in the West and the human rights community have been silent too long, and I think it's because of our lack of education. So I hope that is good. And we have here other leading scholars coming to Harvard after Matthias Kunzel speaks this evening about Iran. We have Tarek Fatah, a Canadian from Toronto, uh, originally born in Pakistan, a public intellectual in Canada, speaking about uh, issues of radical Islamism. He himself is a Muslim scholar. We have David Hirsch from Goldsmiths College speaking about how the unions are adopting in the United Kingdom anti-Semitic uh, boycott uh, positions. And we have Gunter uh, Jukuli, who's also from Germany, who did a very important study on Muslim youth in uh, Germany, European Muslim youth and anti-Semitism. So they're coming to Harvard in the next few weeks. Tonight, 
We have a, a great honor to uh, welcome back Matthias Kunzel. Matthias uh, spoke in our center at Yale, and uh, we were on a program in the Holocaust Center together several summers ago. So a friend and a colleague who's really has been at the forefront for too many years um, dealing with the issue of, of Iran and the Iranian revolutionary regime's anti-Semitism and also its relations to Germany and other European countries. Matthias um, was born in Germany in 1955 and holds a tenured position as a teacher of political science at the Technical College in Hamburg in Germany. In 2011, he was presented with the ADL, or the Anti-Defamation League's uh, Pollock Ehrlich Gunther K. Schwarzen Human Rights Award uh, during the League uh, National Executive Committee, which was held in uh, the United States, in Florida. And they said that Matthias Consul has a long and distinguished record in speaking out against anti-Semitism and warning his readers in his native Germany and elsewhere about the dangers posed by this age-old virus that has known, not known a cure. This is from Abraham Foxman, the director of the ADL. Kunzel is an external research associate at the Vidal Sassoon Center uh, for the study of anti-Semitism at Hebrew University. And until March of 2013, he served as a member of the board of directors of the German chapter of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East. He's a member of the German Council of Foreign Relations, of the German, and he's a member of the German Historians Association, and of the Association for the Study of Middle East and African uh, Studies, or ASMIA. In 2001, his research and writing focused mainly on anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism within Islamic thinking, contemporary Islamic thinking, Islamism and National Socialism, Iran, German and Western policies, um, German and Western policy towards the Middle East and Iran. He's written widely, his articles have appeared in many uh, journals and has been translated into more than 12 languages. He's published uh, in the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, the Journal of Foreign Affairs, the Weekly Standard, Telos, the Policy Review, the uh, Jerusalem Post, uh, Der Spiegel, uh, Der Zeit, and the International Politique. Tonight, uh, Matthias, his is, uh, title of his talk is entitled The Roots of Iranian Antisemitism and Its Consequences. Welcome. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you very much. I'm grateful that you took your time to get some information on this issue, and I hope we will have a vivid debate <coughs> afterwards, because the topic of my talk Iranian anti-Semitism is controversial in at least two respects. Some will say that this is a topic of the past, connected to former Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, but not to his successor. Hassan Rouhani, the new Iranian president, seems to be quite friendly towards the Jews and less hostile to Israel. Later in my talk, I will return to this objection. Others might say that there is and was no Iranian anti-Semitism in the first place. Why? Because even former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad sent Rosh Hashanah greetings to the Jews every year and stated, quote, we are friends with the Jewish people. His self-image 
is that of an ardent anti-Zionist, not that of an anti-Semite. In addition, Jews have lived in Iran for more than 2,000 years, and even today, there are about 10,000 Jews in Iran. They represent the largest Jewish community in any Muslim country. Against this background, is there Iranian anti-Semitism at all? My answer is yes. Ahmadinejad's worldview was steeped in uncompromising anti-Semitism. Firstly, he invested the word Zionist with exactly the same meaning Hitler pured into Jew, the incarnation of evil. And so, instead of saying the Jews are conspiring to rule the world, he says, 2,000 Zionists want to rule the world. Or, the Zionists have for 60 years blackmailed all Western governments. Or, the Zionists fund Western election propaganda and thus control their affairs. And that the Zionists were, among many other calamities, behind the mass murder in Norway, the 9-11 attacks, the Danish Muhammad cartoons, and the destruction of Iraq's Golden Mosque. Anyone who makes Jews, whether as Judas or as Zionists, responsible for all the ills of the world, is obviously driven by anti-Semitism. Secondly, Ahmadinejad proudly denied the Holocaust. Holocaust denial, however, is anti-Semitism at its peak. Whoever declares Auschwitz to be a myth implicitly portrays the Jews as the enemy of humankind, who for filthy lucre has been duping the rest of humanity for the past 70 years. Whoever talks of the so-called Holocaust suggests that over 90% of the world's media and university professorships are controlled by Jews and thereby cut off from the real truth. In this way, precisely the same sort of genocidal hatred gets incited that help prepare the way for the Shoah. Every denial of the Holocaust thus tacitly contains an appeal to repeat it. Ahmadinejad's portrayal of the Shoah was neither new nor a personal obsession, but rather an intensification of themes long prominent in the Islamic Republic's ideological discourse. From the 1990s onward, Iran has gone further than any Arab country in hosting and officially endorsing Western Holocaust deniers who have been shunned in their home countries, such as Jürgen Graf, Wolfgang Fröhlich, and Frederick Thuben. In 1989, President Mohamed Khatami grieved over the prosecution of uh, French Holocaust denier Roger Garoudi. Iran's supreme leader Ali Khamenei even met Garoudi in person, and Mr. Ravzan Shani voiced moral support for Holocaust deniers as well. After December 2005, the new Iranian president Ahmadinejad placed, indeed, the denial of the Holocaust at the center of his rebel rousing. Now, the Iranian regime established exposure of the Holocaust myth as a new historiographical paradigm. The lie about the Holocaust became a regular topic of televised Friday sermons. 
talk shows on public television featured a parade of historians mocking the fairy tale about the gas chambers. The Iranian state press agency developed into a platform for Holocaust deniers from all over the world. In December 2006, Iran's foreign minister Motaki opened the infamous Holocaust denier conference. This conference was special because of its purpose. Previously, Holocaust deniers wanted to revise the past. With this conference, Iran wanted to shape the future. If, quote, the official version of the Holocaust is called into question, declared Motaki in his opening speech, then, quote, the nature and identity of Israel must also be called into question. In his closing speech, Ahmadinejad promised the audience, quote, the life curve of the Zionist regime has begun its descent, and it is now on a downward slope towards its fall. The Zionist regime will be wiped out, and humanity will be liberated, end quote. This sentiment, liberation through destruction, is the one for which the Holocaust historian Saul Friedländer coins the term redemptive anti-Semitism. It is not so far from that expressed in the Nazi directive of 1943, quote, this war will end with anti-Semitic world revolution and with the extermination of Jewry throughout the world, both of which are the precondition for an enduring peace. Ahmadinejad's hatred of Jews resembled Hitler's ideology in this respect. Both have an utopian element, just as Hitler's German peace required the extermination of the Jews, so the Iranian leadership's Islamic peace depends on the elimination of Israel. I mentioned three aspects of Iranian anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, demonization of Zionists or Jews, and the wish to get rid of Israel. All three items are interwoven and belong together. They form what I call an ideological triangle. Anyone who accepts the reality of the Holocaust can't at the same time believe that the Jews are the rulers of the world. Anyone who accepts the Jews as they are, instead of demonizing them, can't call into question the fact of the Holocaust. Anyone who accepts Israel's right to secure existence must repudiate anti-Semitism. So, elimination of Israel, demonization of Jews, and Holocaust denial, if any of the three sides of this ideological triangle is absent, the whole structure collapses. So let me conclude my first point. The Iranian regime pretends to struggle against Zionism, not against the Jews. This anti-Zionism, however, is just a Trojan horse under the cover of which the Islamic Republic tries to make its redemptive anti-Semitism respectable. It is the Iranian leadership's special sense of mission, the mission to liberate the world, that propels them to propagate their plan 
of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial all over the world via the United Nations, via satellite, satellite uh, television channels, via the internet. I would like now to proceed to the second part of my speech. And that is about the roots of Iranian anti-Semitism. Many believe that Iranian anti-Semitism is caused by the Middle East conflict. But this is not true. No doubt Iranian anti-Semitism is whipped up by events in the Middle East. Its roots, however, are older than the state of Israel. The first root is a religious one, Islamic anti-Judaism. It is true that Jews and non-Jews share a history that goes back some 2,700 years in Iran. This does not mean, however, that Jews have enjoyed equality under the Shiite rule that began in 1501. On the contrary, in no other Islamic land were Jews so poorly treated and so brutally persecuted as in Persia. In 80, 30, 400 Jews in Tabris had their throats slashed. In 1839, all the Jews of Mashhad were forced to convert to Islam. In 1910, following rumors of ritual murder, 6,000 Jews in Shiraz were robbed of all their possessions. 12 were killed and another 50 wounded. Quote, I do not know any more miserable, helpless, and pitiful individuals on God's earth than the Yahudi in those countries, the Orientalist and voyager Arminius Bembury wrote in 1905 following his return from Persia. The poor Jew is despised, belabored, and tortured. He is the poorest of the poor. This inhuman treatment has to do with the particularity of the Shiite image of the Jew that has no counterpart in Sunni Islam. Only the Shiite established a system of ritual purity, which bears similarities to the attitude of Hindus towards the pariahs or untouchables. According to it, whoever is not Muslim is najas, or impure. All contact with najas is considered a sort of poisoning. The paranoid fear of infection provoked periodic excesses and led to the development of a particular Shiite code of conduct, which especially affected Jews, since unlike the Iranian Christians and the small Zoroastrian community, the Jewish minority was present throughout the country. Its members had to live in ghettos and were not permitted to go out when it rained or snowed in order to prevent their impurity from spreading and coming into contact with Muslims. For the same reason, they were prohibited from visiting public baths or having any contact with the food and drinks of Muslims. And a um, couple of uh, months ago, I read in the New York Times a little story by a writer from Iran uh, she, she emigrated and she told about her father's experience as a Jew in Iran and this was uh, during the 40s and uh, the father was um, going to school to a normal, uh, to a, uh, he wanted to go to school but then there was a rain six weeks 
only rain. So six weeks long, the little boy was not allowed to go to school because of the poisoning of other Muslims, you know. Um, and so, uh, in this case, the, the superior of the school one day came with a glass of water and invited the young boy and then he asked the boy to drink from the water and then he drank two from the water so that the other uh, students or pupils could learn that this guy is not poisoning the others in order to make it possible for him to go to school again. So there are many, many examples uh, in, this in, this, uh, in, in this special uh, uh, example, a uh, very good uh, model of the superior of the school, of course. You had, you had a question, or? Can we ask questions? Um, I prefer afterwards, okay? Thank you very much. Okay, officially these rules, these Natchez rules, were abolished when the Shah Pahlavis came to power. But the Orthodox clergy continued to insist on them. Thus, in 1962, the Ayatollah Ruwala Khomeini, the future supreme leader of the revolution, explicitly propagated the Najah's doctrine in a widely disseminated handbook titled Clarification of the Problems, a Guide to Muslims in Their Daily Life. And I quote from this um, uh, guidance, there are 11 things which make unclean, he noted, urine, feces, sperm, carrion, blood, dog, pig, unbeliever, wine, beer, and the sweat of a camel which eats unclean things. In a gloss on number eight, unbeliever, he adds, quote, the entire body of the unbeliever is unclean, even his hair and nails and body moistures are unclean, end quote. There is, however, some hope, quote, when a non-Muslim man a woman is converted to Islam. Their body, saliva, nasal secretions, and sweat are ritually clean. If, however, the clothes were in contact with their sweetie body before their conversion, these remain unclean. Quote. So, um, this is a kind of unbelievable uh, lunacy. There is a second root of Iranian anti-Semitism, and that is Nazi propaganda. During the Second World War, European anti-Semitism ideology was brought to Tehran in the Farsi language via a Berlin-based shortwave propaganda radio station called Radio Season. In German, Season, in English you would pronounce it Season. Uh, Season is a little town in the south of Berlin where all those uh, shortwave uh, installations were located. This is a well-established, though rarely mentioned, fact. I found documents in the archives of the German Foreign Office showing that Nazis incited hatred of Jews among the Iranian population by fusing early Islamic Jew hatred with a European myth of the Jewish world conspiracy. Let me quote the recommendations that Erwin Ettel, the German ambassador to Tehran, 
sent to the Foreign Office in Berlin in a letter of February 1941. Quote, the way to directly connect with Shiite ideas is through the treatment of the Jewish question, which the Muslims perceive in religious terms, and which precisely for this reason makes him susceptible to national socialism on religious grounds. A way to foster this anti-Jewish development would be to highlight Muhammad's struggle against the Jews in ancient times and that of the Führer in modern times, he advised the Foreign Office. Additionally, by identifying the British with the Jews, an exceptionally effective anti-English propaganda campaign can be conducted among the Shiite people. Mr. Ettel, the ambassador, even picked out the appropriate Quranic passages, such as Surah 5, verse 82. Quote, truly, you will find that the most implacable of men in their enmity to the faithful are the Jews and the pagans. And the final sentence, sentence of chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, which says, quote, in resisting the Jew, I do the work of the Lord, end quote. By successfully bringing the country's clergy under the sway of German propaganda, we can win over broad layers of the popular masses, Ethel wrote in February 1941. And there are various testimonies from the period that indicate that these broadcasts were widely heard. Iranian author Amir Sheheltan wrote that it was common for passers-by to stand on the sidewalks at the entrance of the tea houses in Tehran, listening to radio season broadcasts on the progress of the German army. He wrote, quote, these broadcasts inspired the fantasy of the masses on the street. Each German victory represented a defeat of the colonial powers, the Soviet Union and Great Britain, which they applauded. Radio season thus contributed to growing numbers of Persians, weeing Jews and Zionists through the anti-Semitic perspective of the Germans. Among the regular listeners to Nazi Germany's radio propaganda was Ruhollah Khomeini, the founder of Islamism in Iran, which brings me to the third route, Khomeini's anti-Semitism. During the reigns of Reza Shah and his son Muhammad Reza Shah from 1925 till 1979, Iranian Jews enjoyed political equality, cultural autonomy, and also an increasing level of economic security. Nonetheless, even as unofficial, Judeophobia continued to exist. From 1963, Khomeini, the most important opponent of the Shah, recognized the mobilizing power of anti-Semitism and exploited it himself. I know that you do not want Iran to be under the boot of the Jews, he cried out to his supporters in April 1963. In the same year, he called the Shah a Jew in disguise and accustomed him of taking orders from Israel. The response was enormous. Khomeini had found his theme. Khomeini's bio biographer Amir Tahiri writes, quote, the Ayatollah was by now convinced that the central political theme of contemporary life was an elaborate and highly complex conspiracy by the Jews who controlled everything 
to emasculate Islam and dominate the world thanks to the natural wealth of the Muslim nation. From this point on, hatred of Jews, both in its atavistic Shiite form and in the form of modern anti-Semitism, would remain a central component of the Islamist ideology of Iran. After the Sixth Day War of 1967, the anti-Semitic agitation, which did not differentiate between Jews and Israelis, intensified. Quote, it was the Jews who first established anti-Islamic propaganda and engaged in various strategies. As you can see, this activity continues down to the present, Khomeini wrote in 1970 in his main work, Islamic Government. The Jews wish to establish Jewish domination throughout the world, he continued. Since they are cunning, a cunning and resourceful group of people, I fear that they may one day achieve their goal. In September 1977, he finally declared, quote, the Jews have grasped the world with both hands and are devouring it with an insatiable appetite. They are devouring America and have now turned their attention to Iran and still they are not satisfied, end quote. So those quotes are quite unknown, but it's documented in the writing of Khomeini. Um, there are, of course, documentaries about this writing. Um, it's forgotten because uh, two years later, when Khomeini was the unchallenged leader of the Iranian revolution, this rhetoric was toned down. When he won this revolution, he couldn't ignore neither the signs of submission given by the Jewish community in Iran, nor the precept of tolerance laid down in the Quran. So he changed his rhetoric, and in May 1979, he declared, quote, we distinguish between Jews and Zionists. Zionism has nothing to do with religion. From now on, Jews, like the Armenian Christians and Zoroastrians, were treated as dhimmis, accepted under special circumstances. The fundamental anti-Semitism, however, was left unchanged. Thus, in 2005, at the Iranian stand at the Frankfurt Book Fair, I was able to purchase an English edition of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, published by the Islamic Propagation Organization of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Other anti-Semitic literature, such as Henry Ford's The International Jew, was also available at these stands. Let me summarize my second part. It is true that Ahmadinejad was the first president worldwide to make Holocaust denial a hallmark of a powerful state's foreign policy. Anti-Semitism, however, is an inherent component of Khomeini's ideology, which itself is deeply rooted in Islamic anti-Judaism as well as European anti-Semitism. But in September 2013, the new foreign minister of Iran, Mohammed Javad Zarif, wished Happy Rosh Hashanah on his English language Twitter account to Christine Pelosi, the daughter of the representative Nancy Pelosi of California. Christine responded, thanks. The new year would be even sweeter if you would end Iran's Holocaust denial, sir. To which Mr. Zarif, responded, Iran never denied it. 
The man who was perceived to be denying it is now gone. Happy New Year. And this brings me to my third point. What changed after Iran's new president, Rasan Rouhani, took power in August 2013? Let us take a closer look at Mr. Sarif's words. He claims Iran never denied the Holocaust. This denial of the denial is, of course, utterly misleading, as we have seen. Iran was the first and only country in the world to make Holocaust denial a central matter of foreign policy. Mr. Zarif's second claim, the man who was perceived to be denying it is now gone, is partly true, since Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is fortunately no longer president. But what about Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of the Islamic Revolution, who has also ridiculed quote, the myth of the massacre of Jews known as the Holocaust? It is true, on the one hand, that the tone of Holocaust denial has changed since Rouhani and Zarif entered office. Previously, denial of the Holocaust was a leitmotif of Iran's foreign policy. Today, it is still an undisputed part of Iran's state ideology, but is no longer the centerpiece of its public diplomacy. On the other hand, even the internationally presentable Rouhani is still far from acknowledging the real scope and nature of the Holocaust. Asked, for example, whether the Holocaust was real, Iran's new president responded, I'm not an historian, I'm a politician. But to pretend that the facts of the Holocaust are a matter of serious historical dispute and available only for historians is a classic rhetorical evasion. Later, Rouhani maintained that, quote, a group of Jewish people had been killed during, by the Nazis during the Second World War. But again, Holocaust deniers commonly acknowledged that Jews were killed while insisting that the number of Jewish victims was relatively small and that a systematic effort to wipe them out did not Place. The mainstream thinking among Iran's rulers is even worse. They leave no doubt that the complete denial of the Holocaust is an essential part of Iran's state ideology. Foreign Minister Zarif's Twitter that Iran never denied it was met with a wave of angry protests. Let me quote the chief editor of the newspaper Kayan, which is considered to be the mouthpiece of Iran's supreme leader. Quote, the Holocaust is nothing but a myth created by the Zionists. There is not a shred of doubt that the story of the Holocaust is false. He added that in this respect, Ahmadinejad still deserves praise. There have not only been relevant statements in favor of Holocaust denial, but also symbolic acts. Some examples. Only recently, Khamenei, the supreme leader, honored Roger Gorodi, the famous French Holocaust denier. An internet journal close to the Iranian leadership published an exhibition of so-called fake pictures of the Holocaust. Fast News, the official state news agency, launched a condemnation of the UNESCO-based Aladdin project, which provides information about the Holocaust in Arabic and Persian language. This project, Farsi News states, 
is fulfilling the goals of the Zionists. Its purpose is to persuade Muslim countries to recognize the Zionist fabricated narrative about the Holocaust. So we can conclude that the tone of Holocaust denial may have changed, but that its substance has not. But what about the rants against international Zionism? Have they at least vanished? Not at all. Hassan Rouhani referred at his first press conference in August 2013 to unspecified warmongering pressure groups. He accused those warmongering pressure groups of confusing the White House at the behest of an unidentified country in order to sabotage the negotiations about Iran's nuclear program. Guess which country he meant. Let me quote the new Iranian president. Unfortunately, a pressure group in the US, which is a warmongering group and is against constructive talks, is pursuing the interest of a foreign country and mostly receives its orders from that foreign country. The interests of one foreign country and one group have been imposed on the members of the United States Congress. And we can see that even the interests of the United States are not considered in such actions. Of course, there are many United Nations Security Council resolutions about the Iranian nuclear program, which were adopted unanimously and with the consent of all the veto-holding powers. The whole world wanted Iran to stop its weapon-related nuclear enterprise. Rouhani, however, blames one country, Israel, for pulling the strings against the interests of the American people. He accuses Israel of giving orders to the Israel lobby in the United States, not for the sake of peace, but for the sake of war, not in order to foster constructive talks, but in order to prevent successful negotiations, not in favor of the American people, but against American interests. The Jews are our misfortune was a better cry of the German anti-Semitic pamphlet Der Stürmer, which helped to pave the road to Auschwitz. Israel, the warmongering Jew, is our misfortune. This is the gist of Rouhani's remarks at his first press conference. You might recall the 1994 bombing of a Jewish charity's office in Argentina that killed 85 people and injured 300, a crime obviously instigated by the Iranian leadership. The sole reason for this crime was the fact that the state of Argentina did not want to continue its nuclear cooperation with Iran. Who, however, was to blame and to punish for Argentina's independent decision? The Jewish scapegoat. Who else? And this Argentine example illustrates that the anti-Jewish paranoid pattern contains a call to kill. If the Jews of Argentina are responsible for the government's decision, you have to kill them in revenge. If Israel is responsible for incitement and war, you have to wipe it out in order to secure peace in the world. We must therefore once again conclude that Hossein Rouhani in this respect too certainly differs from Ahmadinejad in tone, but not in substance. Rouhani has abandoned the most excessive anti-Semitic ranting and replaced it with somewhat more sober anti-Semitic ranting. Does this constitute an improvement? Yes, it does. And at the same time, no, it does not. 
for there is a disturbing tendency in the West to be satisfied or even relieved with everything less radical than Ahmadinejad. While the totalitarian character of this regime has remained constant, the world's media perception of the Islamic Republic of Iran has changed dramatically. Most politicians and journalists in the West have a good feeling about the new Iranian president. They do not want to spoil this feeling by looking too closely at what Khomeini or his boss Khamenei actually say and do. They would rather allow themselves to be taken in by the new Iranian government's public relations spin than to recognize the unchanging policy that analyzes it. Ahmadinejad was terrible, but he did create a certain team spirit among the Western powers in Israel. Rouhani is not much better, but seems to be succeeding in isolating Israel by luring the Western powers over to his side. Let me give you a last example. In November 2013, Ali Khamenei ranted and raved at the Jewish state, calling it, we heard it from Charles Small, a sinister, unclean rabbit dog, and added that, quote, Israelis should not be called humans, end quote. Khamenei used this language just hours before negotiations about the nuclear program between Iran and the six world powers were sent to resume in Geneva. Previously, such ranting led Western diplomats to leave the conference room of the United Nations General Assembly. Now, the Western powers did not even address Khamenei's inflammatory language during the talks at Geneva. The fact that the leader of an American dialogue partner used language that recalls Nazi incitement went unheeded. If the current Iranian regime really wants to get beyond the stupid notion of Holocaust denial, it has to throw the protocols of the elders of Zion overboard and recognize Israel. We look forward to the day when that happens. So let me please conclude. Yes, there is Iranian anti-Semitism. It is deeply rooted in history and has been part of the system since 1979. Under Rouhani, it changed its appearance, but not its character. The Holocaust is still denied. World Zionism is still held responsible for the evil in the world, and Israel's annihilation continues to be propagated, though in a less radical form. The West, however, shares the delusionary hope that Iran's essential change already took place or became possible with Rouhani. History shows the consequences of failing to take what anti-Semites say literally, it shows where the flight into illusion eventually leads to total war. That is what, uh, what we must bear in mind and what we must prevent. So I thank you very much for your attention and attention. Thank you very much. Comprehensive analysis, and there's time for questions and answers. So, you, you had a question first. Yeah, so, I had a couple of questions, I guess, that sort of wanted to interrupt in the middle. Where I noticed you didn't specifically mention the whole idea of the people, as far as the sort of the nudges of the unclean. When, was there a reason uh, that you sort of maybe not mentioned it specifically about the, the regular sort of the rulings of the these uh, clergies in Iran about the 
book of uh, the people of the book where Jews would be considered. Okay, um, the, 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 you know the people of the book in the Quran. Um, this is um, in the Sunni Islam comment. But I wanted to pressure. I wanted to uh, put emphasis on this the specifics of the Shiite ideology. And they also, of course, have this Quranic sentences, but in addition, this kind of not just doctrine, which you don't find in other Muslim countries or, you know, in the sunny world. And I, for myself, think it is rooted in the Zoroastrian ideology, which um, uh, was the, the main religion before the um, um, Islamic faith came to Iran. And this Zoroastrian um, uh, kind of thinking makes a big difference between good and the bad, you know, Ariman, the bad part, and then the good part. And we also have it um, in India, you know, with the Hariyas, which touch and so on and so forth. So there are some specific reasons why in this part of the world it was possible to add to the Dimi notion of the Quran something special and something specific. And that is the thing I wanted to explain. Yeah, the second is just, I, I noticed maybe you didn't mention specifically the, um, the creation of the development of the state of Israel as one of the sort of the roots of this anti-Semitism. Would you consider that at all? Or is that just sort of an implicit thing? Well, um, you know, um, this is a good question, a very good question. Uh, normally, if you see um, Israel and Iran. There is no reason to be angry at each other. There is no common border. So you have no fight over borders. There is no Iranian refugee problem, you know? Nothing like that. Uh, the opposite is true. The Iranians don't like the Arabs. There is a kind of racism against the Arabs, you can say. And so it's really something, and we have the history of living together of Jews and Muslims since long, long times. And we have quite good experiences during the time of the Shah. It was not only, you know, it's a, it's a kind of propaganda to say, well, the Israels, um, they, they made the security for the Shah and so on and so forth. But when the Shah made his reform project on, uh, you know, the, the liberation of the peasants in 90, it was called revolution, in the 1963, um, you had a lot of new independent peasants and they needed a way to water their fields in a modern way. And since the climate conditions in Israel are very similar to the climate conditions in Iran, there was a big exchange so many, many farmers were, went to Israel to learn from the methods of watering the fields and came back and Israelis went to Iran to show them what is the best way to deal with the problem. So there was a kind of connection which was um, very useful. So you, you don't have all these reasons which you uh, have, of course, with the Palestinian Arabs or with the, the Egyptian Arabs. You don't have those conditions in the case of Iran. So the question is, what is the reason why this regime is so hostile towards Israel? And there I would say the anti-Semitic aspect, um, both aspects, the, the anti-Judaism, the Islamic faith, 
and also the Nazi propaganda, which was directed against Zionism, of course. The British were pro-Jewish because they supported the Zionist enterprise, and the Americans were disguised Jews, you know. All these propaganda which came into this country via the uh, radio broadcast, of course, acceptable for all these illiterate masses of Iran. Uh, they, they, this is the main reason, in my, in my opinion. I thought that a couple of times you went over the top in your rhetoric and uh, used phraseology that seemed to stigmatize Iran and the Shia Islam. Now the first case is one that came up again in connection with the last question, the uh, discussion of nachas and related things. I believe you called this incomprehensible lunacy. Oh, well, one does not have to look to Zoroastrians or to uh, India to look for parallels and for more likely sources. There is, after all, the history of the Jewish ritual impurity laws, mm -hmm. which are in the Jewish Bible and which certainly influenced early Islam in some ways, presumably in the dietary prohibitions, for example. So such things that we call the comprehensible lunacy are you know, all over the book of Leviticus and places like that, where you know you can you have to wash after you touch and anything, any insect, you know, could be the thing, and so forth. So this ritual impurity thing is very widespread in cultures all over the world, and uh, it's not something about moral evil in the Jewish uh, ritual law but it's about impurity, and menstruating women, and, uh, and unclean animals, and carrion, and corpses, and so forth, many of the categories that we listed. So it seems to me that this is more likely in origin, and indeed some of the same prohibitions are used in many religious communities to limit contact with those outside the group. In Orthodox Judaism today, for example, uh, very, uh, very traditional Orthodox Jews. Not all Orthodox Jews, but the more pietistic ones. Uh, want only pas Yisrael, only bread that has been baked by Jews, eaten by such a Jew. And not all foodstuffs, but wine. There were other prohibitions about
but in this special wording which I quoted from Khomeini, it's for me it sounds like an insidious. Uh, but I don't want to be over the top. I want to be as accurate as possible. And 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 so um, can you tell me another example where so-called uncleans are not allowed to go onto the streets when it rains or snows? Are there other examples for this extreme code of conduct? I would like to, to, to learn you know, from you if you have other examples in the world that uh, a, a special kind of people are not allowed to go to the streets when it rains. I, I don't know any other example. No, that particular example I do not know, but certainly having been an Orthodox Jew and being a Kohen, I would worry about entering a building in which there, not, in which there was a piece of a corpse, such as a Christian a Catholic church, because there was a bit of a corpse probably in an altar, and I would have this worry of contracting religious impurity, which I must not as a priest contract, because perhaps the temple okay. would be reestablished tomorrow, and then I would not be able to perform my duties of shooting uh, slaughtering animals in but the temple. Then it would not have been a state conduct, but your personal uh, aversion or, or your personal, uh, personal decision. And I also think um, I don't want to be over the top. Um, with Rouhani, I think it's very important um, that he says only Israel is against our nuclear program, and which is not true, of course. If you see the resolutions of the, uh, um, of the Security Council, Israel is not a member of the Security Council. So this is really not true, and he tries to make um, a split between the Jews on the one hand, the Jewish state, Israel, and the rest of the world together with Iran on the other hand. And, and this is, of course, a kind of blaming one special kind of people for unrest, for doing things which are anti-American, for uh, uh, creating war atmosphere, for uh, preventing peace. And this is a very old anti-Semitic diatribe that Jews are always eager to instigate war. You find it in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and you find it in very, you know, many, many uh, examples of anti-Semitic literature. Okay. Again, thank you for your question. I'll just say as a scholar of anti-Semitism studies and of racism, I, I find it staggering that you could compare some of the uh, examples that Professor Kunzel just outlined to us on, on the restrictions of, of, in this case, of Jewish people and others, i.e. not going out with his brain, to perhaps the private baking needs of a small portion of the Jewish community. And the key that Professor Kunzel said, there is a tremendous difference between religious observance in the private sphere and public policy. And, and I think to focus on you know, these types of halakhic practices in a very stereotypical way is extraordinary, to me extraordinary problematic. Yeah. Thank you for your but question. But I should say, no, in response to that. And what makes say. you think that you're entitled to judge what's over the top? What's over the top to you might not be over the top to well, me, and why is that? But I think we're going to ask the question. You, you, you said this is private. It's not private. There's a, in, in the it's a law that as a Kohen, I, can, I, I have to keep myself ritually pure in this way. That's your, that is a law that it's not that's not. But that's not state legislation. That's not private. That's, you, may, you may do it in your home, in your city, but not in the private, not in the public sphere. There's a big difference between states controlling public policy and public space, 
and you doing what you want to do or you don't want yeah. to do in your private yeah, space. Not recognize the distinction. Uh, I would like to bring a, a light now to all of this conversation because Corinne is coming up. And remember that Esther was married to a Persian king. His name was Hamashveros. So we did have close relations. They lived on a place called Shoshan, which was a city in Persia. Right? So there are strong relations. Why don't we try by facts and history to bring that we actually have close relations and we are not against what we are related. Hebrew and Farsi are related as languages. So we can bring certain things and, you know, on a way with a little humor and with a little lightness. Because if we are too harsh, then we, they are going to get harsher. But if we go to find some sort of a point that we have in common, that we had connections that go back in history thousands of years, not only seven or five or eight hundred years, then maybe they will change that because otherwise this lunacy is never going to end. And probably you had seen that there is a new movement in Belgium that, uh, you know, a, a young leader that wants to imply Sharia law in Belgium and said today they do not have enough because they are only 20%, but he guarantees that in 20 years it's going to be all over Europe. So on a way, with knowledge, we can counterbalance, you know, all this lunacy. And thank you for that. Um, just one note, thank you very much. Um, we have to make a differentiation between the leadership in Iran and the people. Really, it's important. And what you are saying has a chance with the people of Iran and, and the young people. There are so many people who, who listened, for example, to Radio Israel because it gave them news which they can't get from their own institutions in Iran. Uh, so um, we, we, we have to make this differentiation. And if I see the leadership in Iran, if I see Ali Khamenei, who translated Said Qutb, the, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, and also his pamphlet, Our Struggle Against the Jews. This leadership is really believing in what it is saying about the Jews. It is anti-Semitic, and you can't convince a really radical anti-Semite by giving examples how good the relationship has been. Uh, but they forget that Ishmael was the son of Abraham. They, they, they want to forget it. Yes, they want to forget it. Okay. Mr. Thanks very much for your um, some of the things that um, you quoted about Shiite Islam sound very familiar to Sunni attacks on Shiite Islam. That um, I've heard many times um, Sunnis say the Shiites are worse than the Jews. And um, I was wondering, on some level, on a psychological level, could this be some type of uh, defense mechanism that Shiites have, that we're not like the Jews, that we hate them more than you do? Um, and also, the, um, your point about the, um, the people in Iran, I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned that. Because um, as far as I know, um, Iran is the only um, country in the Muslim world where they had public memorials after 9-11. And that there's a lot of interest in Judaism and um, Israel in Iran from what I've read. Well, this is a... Uh a bit uh, speculative, you know. Um, 
was it, you know, of course the Shiites were always a minority. And they always wanted to defend against the majority of Sunni Islam. Therefore, they also allowed this kind of official lying, the Taqiyya doctrine. So they had a lot of self-defense mechanisms. But I don't think that the Najaf doctrine against every unbeliever is this kind of defense mechanism. I, I don't see the connection, you know. Um, um, and it was, of course, not the criticism of the Najaf doctrine, which made the Sunnis, uh, the Sunnis angry against the Shiites, uh, but this kind of uh, referring the Imams. Uh, this is um, seen by Sunni Orthodox people as a kind uh, of um, um, there's not only one God, then but many gods, you know? The 12th Imam, the 11th Imam. So they are reverent like gods, and so the Sunnis say, well, this is against the Quran, it's against the whole religion, and you have to stop that. And also, it's very interesting, uh, the, uh, in the Sunni Islam, it's really forbidden to, to paint pictures of Muhammad or, you know, but in the, in the, in the tradition of Shiite Islam, it, it was not impossible to, 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 to have nice pictures um, uh, about Muhammad, uh, sometimes without the eyes shown, sometimes with the eyes shown. There, there are whole books uh, with pictures that way. So there are really, um, uh, uh, in, the, in the conduct of religion, big differences. And so I think these differences are the main reason why the Sunnis, uh, from time to time, uh, feel this kind of hatred, but it's very spectacular during the last uh, five or ten years when religion suddenly became such a big thing, and this is uh, due to the growing influence of Islamism. I have a question, but I think you addressed it in your question and answer session about the difference between the general population and the leadership. It seems that if the general population was so religiously anti-Israel, the Shah would have had a much more difficult time being good friends of Israel. Uh, so, it's, but you said though yeah. that the general population, the young, the youth population, I think most of, them, I think 50% of them, Iran is under 35, yeah. uh, is not very religious or not very anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. Is that your assessment? Um, Do you think it's simply the leadership? Um, no, it's not that simply, because also this leadership has a mass base. But this mass base, it's the Basici movement, for example, um, is not the majority of the country. And this uh, mass base is also, you know, uh, in a way, they get money, um, they get better conditions to study later on. So it's also a kind of uh, deal you know, with, the, with the regime. Um, so, um, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting what, 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 what you are saying about the Shah and Israel during those years. Um, and it's, um, you have to recognize that during the years of 1978-1977, so when the crisis evolved that toppled uh, the Shah, uh, it was not a religious country at that time. 
um, um, the mosques were empty. It was um, not a place um, Iranian population liked very much because they always thought that the clergy is, you know, lazy and not worth anything and so on and so forth. And so the, the, the revolution was made from three quarters. The nationalists, the, you know, the successors of Motasek and others, then the left wing, the two-day party, and Khomeini and his special teaching. But he was not the real leader. It was very open, it was very open who will succeed uh, within those, you know, kind of coalition. And then the nationalist leaders um, went to Khomeini and said, well, you should be our leader. And then the two-day party tried to defend Khomeini until the last minute and after that they were forbidden too. So um, this, um, this whole revolution against the Shah was not um, mainly a religious revolution. And we, we, we have to see the coalition character of the whole event. And only afterwards, also when Iraq attacked Iran in the year 1979 at November, it started. This was very, very good for Khomeini because under the circumstances of war, he was able to really um, make his rule secure. And this was the time when he also founded the Basici movement and the Revolutionary Guards in order to have his own, you know, SS guards. And so, um, um, I, I, you know, what, what Khomeini said about the Shah, that he is a Jew, and you know, uh, this played no role at all uh, later on in the year at demonstrations in 2009 and 2010, which uh, attacked this concentration uh, of the regime against Israel and so on and so forth. And you know, there is a, I think at the time being, there is no other Muslim country in the world where the Muslim religion is so much hated than in Iran, because the people got to know this kind of Islamism and uh, I have a friend, uh, he's in Germany, his brother is uh, in Iran, and he told this little story, you know, in Iran they have the taxis for, you know, seven or eight people at the same time. And there was one um, uh, uh, fellow, he was very uh, uh, high, you know, and the, the, the head was beneath the um, car, how do you call it? Roof. Roof, right, right, right. 
And so when there was a hole in the street, the car made this kind of thing and his head topped against the roof, uh, roof all the time. And every time he made one curse, it was called Nazrada. And then the next hole, Nazrada. The next hole, Nazrada. And what was meant? Nasrallah is the leader of the Hezbollah in Lebanon. And so he wanted to say, the state gives all the money to this idiot instead of repairing roads. So this kind of popular uh, hatred against this uh, priority of the regime is there. And, and, but if it's also a kind of pro-Israel position, I would doubt. Because, of course, the education programs and so on. They work on the wrong Another question. Um, and it's about your case against the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in Iran. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, there is a Jewish representative in the Iranian parliament, the Islamic parliament, right? So that sort of brings this sort of cognitive, cognitive distance where, on one hand, you say the regime is this much against sort of the Jews. And I think you sort of use the word Jew and, um, uh, let's say, Zionist, which I think the Iranians usually use, very much interchangeably, right? Um, is, there, is there something like internally that somehow they are okay with Jews and that, um, that maybe you didn't completely reflect or is that something that, I don't know, can you explain this sort of behavior I guess? Um, well, it's, it's true, there is uh, one representative of the three accepted religions, one Zoroastrian, one uh, Christian from the Armenians, and one Jew sitting in the parliament, a, a guaranteed seat. Um, of course, Baha'is is quite another issue, or Sunnis in Iran are really suffering. So, so um, all other religions are forbidden and persecuted. Um, well, it's um, the, the Jewish community in Iran is in a very special condition. Uh, it's possible to read the, 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 the homepage, you know, it's, it's possible, it's in English. So you can read what they are writing there. And for example, you can read how much they hate Israel, how much the Jews in Iran love Nasrallah, um, and, and you know, all these things which you have to say if you don't want to get persecuted. So it's, um, it's, it's a sad story. And, and, and because they are bowing, of course, to every command of the leadership. And, um, and again, I think, um, I, I don't know it exactly, but I believe and what I've heard is that on the level of people, uh, Shiite Iranians are proud that Jews are part of the country and they help each other and it's not, you know, a mass basis as we had in Nazi Germany for example. Uh, on the other hand, the leadership again and again is putting anti-Jewish diatribes, you know, within the communication and within the public relations sense. Um, one, one, one of the best friends of Ahmadinejad uh, suddenly spoke about the Jews, how dirty they are, and so on and so forth. So um, the situation of the Jews is always unsecured. 
and they always get this feeling, well, they are welcome and they are not welcome. <coughs> and another? I mean, I guess, just continuing with that, we don't, I guess, as an argument against sort of the difference between the Jews and the, and the Zionists, which are the that I think when you sort of keep on bringing up the point that the Iranian regime talks about the Jews, I think most of the time they're talking about, or maybe all of the time, they're talking about the Zionists, this sort of ideology in their mind that this other country sort of espouses that it's not specifically about the Jews, where, as you said, well, the residents... There are always some exceptions. There are always exceptions. Uh, perhaps three or four times a year, the Jews are mentioned again. You know? The, the, you are right. Uh, regularly, the Zionists are mentioned. Sure. But, so that's the argument that their issues are not specifically towards the Jewish people, but that it's against some yeah. political ideology. Right. And sort of making these two equivalent, isn't that... Um, sort of being a little bit deceitful, or is that uh, sort of um, the way that they are truly are, um, that they are? It's, it's sort of an um, implicit uh, saying against the Jews when they just say Zionists, or is it that really they don't have anything, any issues with Jews, well, it's only the Zionists, or the Zionism as, as an ideology? That's just my sort of question where yeah. you, I think, were continue to reference Jews where, in my mind, and I've continued to follow up their speeches, they usually talk about Zionists. They yeah. almost never, as you said, they're maybe the exception, but they usually always refer to them as Zionists. Nearly all of us, yes. Um, this is the reason why I mentioned this ideological triangle, you know? And they not only talk about Zionism, they talk about world Zionism, which Hitler called Weltjugend, you know? And so they are saying those world Zionism is controlling the Americans, is controlling the Europeans, is controlling the business and the media. And so um, um, it's and it, it is all over the place. Yeah. Right? I mean, there are political sort of um, rhetorics for their base in, in Iran, obviously, that they certainly. Yes, otherwise they could concentrate on Israel as a little state, but they don't do it. I'd like to add two cents. I think uh, in terms of being deceitful, I think you raise a very important point. It, it is anti-Zionism, but what is Zionism? What is Zionism? Zionism, from a Jewish perspective, is the, the attempt to assert national liberation on this land. The problem, so why the regime has such a problem with the Zionists and not necessarily Jews, is because according to this form of Islam, not Islam, but the regime's form of Islam, is that a non-believing Muslim cannot have self-determination self or equality in society. They have to be dhimmi, they have to be lower than the Muslim. Jews, through the national liberation of their land, refuse to live as second-class citizens. So from an Iranian perspective, from an Islamist perspective, not necessarily from a Muslim perspective, but from an Islamist perspective, Israel, it's not the 1967 now, it's not 1948. If Israel ceded all of its land and said, well, we'll keep Tel Aviv as a city-state, it wouldn't be enough because the Jews would have equality in that space, and that goes against the regime's ideology. So you can play the game that is that Zionism or it's not anti-Semitism, it's not against Jews, but really it is, ultimately, you can't see the other as equal. And the Jews, through the state of Israel, are the only other that have some form of uh, equality, if you should say. Because they're the only others with self-determination in the, in the Islamic world. 
Um, and then the second thing, just as a point, I wrote an article with a guy named Ed Kaplan from uh, Yale, where we looked at traditional forms of anti-Semitism, what we called Israel Dutchman, um, so demonizing Israel. And the correlation, first of all, we, we interviewed 5,000 people in 10 European countries, so it's only European-based, uh, so it doesn't necessarily apply to the Middle East or to Iran. But what we found was those who demonize Israel, it's a very low percentage of the European countries, but they're 13 times more likely to be classically anti-Semitic. So at least in Europe, the correlation between Israel bashers and classical anti-Semitism is very strong. Mm -hmm. so, well, we, we heard a lot about the problem, but I'd like to hear more about the solution. The solution would be like uh, the advocating, and on more than one level, one would be for U U.S. diplomatic policy, U.S. government policy, what are we not doing that we could be doing, what are we doing wrong, and then maybe on another level, on the people-to-people -people level, if there's some something that you uh, have thought of. Yes, of course. At the people-to-people -people level, it's very important to strengthen those within Iran who got persecuted because they spoke out. So um, there are, of course, possibilities to, to, to know the names, to have pictures of them, to make campaigns. Uh, so, to, to, you know, the, the, the repression in Iran is really terrible, and they don't get the solidarity which is needed in order to put pressure on the regime. So this is one point for societies, for organizations like Amnesty International and other organizations. And on the other hand, I think, well, it's so important to understand how deadly anti-Semitism is. I'm, I'm from Germany, and so it's very clear. I, I, I had to deal with the reason why Auschwitz could happen. And it, it only could happen because there were the anti-Semitic words. And slogans, and, and the mindset, and the brainwashing, and everything. And so, um, if we really want to learn from this part of history, it is essentially to take serious what Khamenei is saying when he says Israelis are animals and not human beings. It's really important. This is always the first step. Then they can be killed without suffering, you know? Just animals. And so, what I miss is the outcry of the world. Also of the United States, of course. Um, they, they, um, there was a press conference in the White House. They were asked if they mentioned in the talks of Geneva this scandal. And they answered, no, we did not mention it. And so this is a start. Um, it's considered to be normal that you can call Jews non-humans. And, and, and so this is, this, is, this is a dangerous thing. And at the time being, it's really a very, very frustrating for the Iranians who want to change the regime to see how, uh, you know, um, so-called responsible governments mm -hmm. are uh, carrying favor to the new Iranian leadership. And so it's uh, necessary to uh, go to the public to write um, letters to the editors of newspapers and so on and so forth in order to make clear that uh, we, we shouldn't believe in wishful thinking. 
it's necessary to see the facts and confront the fiction. Um, it's, um, it's very interesting to study the history of appeasement, the psychology of appeasement. And this is a European problem, you know. Winston Churchill uh, wrote a very good book. He made six books about the Second World War. And the first book is mainly about the period of appeasement policies in Europe. It's very interesting because we, we have the similar conditions. Um, during the 30s, people remembered, recalled the First World War. And of course, they didn't want to have a next war. Today, Americans recall the war of Iraq and Afghanistan. They don't want to have another war. So, so this is pretty, pretty similar. And then the second, the second point is, in the moment Chamberlain decided to engage Hitler for a peace project, all the um, reporting about what happened within Germany stopped. Um, the London Times was an appeasement paper, and most of the dailies were appeasement papers. Why? Because they have to sell the papers. The people liked the idea that there was a great solution, peaceful solution. So the editors said, well, let's write down what the people like to read. And so um, only a very, very few uh, uh, newspapers and journals in Britain at that time opposed this kind of reporting, appeasement reporting. And so it's very, very uh, necessary today to recall those period of appeasement in order to see the danger. You know, it's, it's so natural that you want to appease. We are all friendly people and um, if, you know, my mother appeased myself when I was a baby, I liked it. I Sure. So, so this is um, just human, uh, but the policy of appeasement is something completely different. And so I think this is important to, to study the history and to try to learn from history. So we have time for one more question. I don't have a question, but I have a comment on what you made. You said, you observed that the White House conf uh, press conference, no comment was made about speech against Jews, uh, and it was taken as for granted. It used to be the same thing in the United States when comments were made about blacks. When I was a child, or my parents' generation, that was the norm in large areas of the United States. Comments were made, and no one batted an eyelid. And it led to repression, and uh, one thing does lead to another. Comment, people do have to be aware and stand up for what's right. Okay. It's a good way to end the uh, election. <laughs> okay. Okay, so um, yeah, we have everybody here at the test. Thank you very much for an important lecture. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, good questions and dialogue and discussion. Please, on, um, on the 1st of April, we have Tarek Fata from Toronto. It was a very entertaining, insightful public intellectual. He'll be here. So please feel free to come and tell people about it and uh, hope to see you on April the So if someone likes to see my homepage with many articles on the United English language, I can do my thing. And also I want to thank Sherry very much for all your help and uh, publicizing it.